cheers with Ashley. She didn't even look at me, so I just cheers myself. Sorry, I forget that the camera's on, so I couldn't even be slick about it. Oh, okay. God, I'm sorry. Just drastically changing my consolation to this desolation. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the unsettlingly young, frighteningly hip, and disturbingly lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. And we're back. Welcome back, guys. I didn't realize how much I missed hearing you say the intro until you started saying <laughs> the intro right now. Uh, you, were you hearing it in your dreams? And just yeah. Like, Basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's been a while since we've sat down. Any any news, guys? I don't know. Maybe? Anything happened to you, Zach? I feel like it's been quiet on my end. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I got engaged over the... <laughs> yep. So did I. <laughs> what? <laughs> Surprise, listeners. And so, <laughs> and so, we said, so we got two Jesuitical engagements over so the break. So exciting. Yeah. It Congratulations, was, guys. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you. I feel like I've been a part of <laughs> no, not have. this. I mean, about you have. Me, you absolutely have. I feel like through like consolations and desolations and the show, mm-hmm. I've like seen you both grow in these relationships and mm-hmm. it's been so great. Yeah. See. You and the listeners, really. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. So I'm really happy. So um, we, uh, more on that and consolations and desolations, mm-hmm. as you might imagine. Yes, we will certainly hear more about that in the coming weeks. But for now, what are we drinking, Zach? So also over the summer, we were paid a visit by one of our uh, Patreon supporters, Linda Kiera, who also brought with her some great Ohio beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm very pumped about this. We are drinking... Uh, Holy Moses Raspberry White Ale from the Great Lakes Brewing Company. Um, and it is sort of the Holy Moses thing is the, the box has a picture of a Moses parting the sea, but it's not Moses uh, from the Bible. Who, what Moses is it? It, is, it looks like George Washington. It is, uh, who is it? Mr. <laughs> Moses. Moses Cleveland, ah, the person who founded okay, okay. Cleveland, Ohio. So, so your personal hero. Yes, very excited about that. Who is since also since LeBron has left Cleveland. Yeah, is yeah. this is your biggest he's, name. He's back to him again as the icon for the city. Well, uh, yeah. So, thank you so much, Linda. It was wonderful to have her in studio and uh, get these beers. Yeah. So, cheers. Got it. Welcome back. Who are we talking to this week, Zach? So. Over the break, we asked our listeners in the uh, Facebook discussion group that we've got going, uh, who do you want to see us talk to in the new season of Jesuitical? And we got a ton of great recommendations. So thank you all who weighed in on that. I think... Stephen Colbert was pretty high up there, so <laughs> yeah. I think we need to like ask listeners to start a Twitter campaign to like mm-hmm. just like to get him on get Colbert yep, to get come. Colbert to come over yeah. here. Uh, yeah, like fifteen, like maybe at least <laughs> twice a week, someone emails us saying like, yeah. "Hey, like- you've probably heard this before, <laughs> but have you thought about getting Stephen Colbert on the show?" No. <laughs> um, but what, someone that came up uh, more than a few times was Sister Simone Campbell of Network, um, and actually, we've already talked to Sister Simone before, and so we're gonna publish an old interview uh, for back from 2017 where we talked to uh, Sister Simone about a lot of things. Yeah, just easing back into this <laughs> new season. With yes. A- 
the nice rerun. And Sister Simone is basically a celebrity nun. She's the leader of Nuns on the Bus and the executive director of Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice. Speaking of Colbert, you've probably seen her on the Colbert Report. <laughs> She's very much like the public face of women religious in the U.S. when it comes to fighting for things like health care and to keep uh, the social safety net intact. All right, now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week or month. So you don't have to. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a busy month, <laughs> and it, too. Yeah, it has been a busy month for Catholic news. First, some Pope Francis news. He has revised the church teaching on the death penalty. Uh, on August 2nd, he revised the catechism to say that the death penalty is inadmissible in all circumstances. Um, this news is not exactly a huge surprise. Uh, last October, Pope Francis made a pretty strong statement that the death penalty is contrary to the gospel and called for the church to consider changing this teaching. And it, it definitely is a significant shift. So before, the idea was that the death penalty can be um, used in situations where it's needed to uh, protect the common good. If there's no way to keep someone who's dangerous to society in prison, um, then capital punishment can be morally permissible. Um, but basically, the change that's happened is that in no soci- in society, it's always now possible to keep someone like that in prison. Exactly. So that little loophole just doesn't exist in practice anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is just really sort of re-emphasizing what we already believe as Catholics, that all human life is sacred. You it's know? sacred. It's the, the unborn and the condemned mm-hmm. have the same right to life. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. And, and now uh, Pope Francis also called on Catholics around the world to work for the abolition of the death penalty. Uh, and so that's something that we're all called to do now, especially. And there are a few uh, politicians in the United States who are taking different approaches to this, to Catholic politicians specifically. Uh, here in New York, uh, Governor Cuomo, Governor Andrew Cuomo is seeking to officially abolish uh, the death penalty on in New York's laws. It hasn't been used in a very that long is. time. Yeah. Um, but it, it, theoretically, it could someday after a new court comes in and rules differently than uh, the appeals court in 2004 did. Um, so he's trying to remove it from the books completely. Uh, he, and he specifically cited Pope Francis's changes, you know, like a, a, a springboard for this. Yeah. And some people have, you know, encouraged Governor Cuomo to be more consistent in how he quotes Pope Francis um, when it comes to life issues. But it certainly would be a welcome development. <laughs> yes. And uh, alternatively, you have in Nebraska, Governor Pete Ricketts, uh, who is Catholic and all, has cited his uh, uh, Catholic faith as being compatible with his sort of uh, desire for to keep the death penalty. He's literally spent millions of his own dollars mm-hmm. in a campaign to prevent the repeal of the death penalty in his state. And so he has said that he's going to go through with uh, an execution scheduled mm-hmm. for later this month. And it's um, the first one in like 21 years in Nebraska, too. Yep. And this man in particular has been on death row for more than 30 years. Um, and so it'll also be the first time that Nebraska's used uh, lethal injection. The last time that Nebraska executed someone, they were still using the electric chair. And so there is a lot at stake here. There are, there are literally lives at stake in how people are responding to this news from Pope Francis and the Vatican. Yeah. And and like the catechism says, it's it's incumbent on all Catholics to pray and work for the abolition of the death penalty. What's next, Olga? So the Vatican is drafting guidelines to help Catholic dioceses find appropriate ways to um, decommission unneeded churches um, so that they basically the Vatican wants to preserve sort of the cultural or social aspects of churches and the fact that these are sacred spaces and they want to make sure that 
these churches don't become things like discos or gyms or bars, you know. Um, and this is specifically like we've seen this. Um, there's a story out of Canada where dozens of churches, especially specifically ac- across Quebec, have been transformed into university reading rooms, condominiums, cheese emporiums and <laughs> fitness centers. Um, so this is like if, they, you know, the church doesn't need it anymore, mm-hmm. they're going to sell it and someone's going to buy it. Right. right. What are they going to do with it? Right. Exactly. Um, and this is going like, you know, just to put some numbers in. In Quebec, 95% of the population went to mass in the 1950s, but now only 5% do so today. So a lot of these are being completely unused. Yeah, so that's you know? a lot of empty spaces. That's a lot. That is a lot of empty spaces. But I guess my question for you guys is, do you think the church should have a say in what these spaces get transformed into? I definitely do. I think, you know, they should be discerning in who they sell these buildings to. I don't think they should sell old cathedrals to like the NRA to be their new headquarters. Um, But I'm not I'm not against turning them into something like a brewery or Mm -hmm. bar or even even a fitness center. Um, I think, you know, these churches are, you know, beautiful pieces of architecture and oftentimes um, and there's no reason that we need to tear that down. And I think if they are transformed into new places um, that bring people together in community, uh, then I'm cool with that. Yeah. And I, yeah. Actually, so yes, the churches should have a say. So we're in agreement there. Uh, But their say should be much more of a scorched earth policy when it comes to these churches. So I don't, I I actually don't really like them being transformed into something different. I think there is a, a very human impulse to want to preserve these spaces because they were consecrated for religious purposes and they were the place where baptism and marriages and funerals and all these different things took place and countless masses took place. And so there's a a desire to want to keep that around or respect that that was a holy thing. And I think there are two ways you can go with that. And one is to just sort of keep the building there intact as much as possible. But also I think it's actually more respectful to just be okay with, you know, this was holy, this happened here, we can destroy it, you know, and move the physical building aside that's not used anymore and let whatever new comes. But then there's not this weird like shell of a Catholicism that, you know, people are, you know, pumping their biceps to in the background. It's not the same as like a Trader Joe's moving into an old bank or something like that. But I think that takes like a very narrow view of why these spaces were or continue to be holy. Like we talked to Gilbert Sangara, the Jesuit architect, about how he literally like we can build God into these designs and the spaces. And so even like when the Eucharist is gone and the mass is no longer there, I think there's still beauty and holiness in these buildings. And if people gather there and, you know, maybe not everyone's going to like look to the Mm -hmm. ceiling and have a transcendent experience, but maybe someone will see this beauty and be like, oh, what did this used to be? And then they'll go Google it and they'll maybe they'll stumble upon yeah, Catholicism. I think I, I think I agree with you, Ashley, because I think tearing it down does more to erase the history than if we kept it and turned it into spaces where different kinds of communities can come together, you know? So what's our next story, Zach? So our next story comes from Louisiana at Xavier University, where the president, Reynold Verrett, announced that the university and its Institute for Black Catholic Studies is going to become a new hub for the advancement of sainthood causes for African-American Catholics. And fun fact, this university is the only historically black Catholic university in the country. 
Hmm, I did not, not know, that. know that. Yeah, and it's really cool. They're, they have given a number of names of people that they're going to be working for their sainthood causes, uh, a few of which we've talked about on this show, uh, like uh, Father Augustus Tolton, who was the first African-American priest in the U.S., as well as a number of black Catholic sisters who we spoke to Shannon D. Williams about um, in a previous episode, episode 67, if you want to check that out. And while there are a number of black saints and African saints in the church, there still aren't any African-American saints. And so hopefully uh, this university and its institute can work towards recognizing the uh, the lives of holy African-American men and women in the United States. Yeah, and that's so important. And that's what we talked to Shannon D. Williams about is how important it was for her and her faith journey to have have Catholics that looked like her that she could um, look up to as role models in the faith. So great work being done here. All right, time for our... Last story, and this is a, a serious one. Um, Ashley, you want to introduce it? So right before we went on break back in June, uh, the formal Cardinal Theodore McCarrick was removed from public ministry um, after a old abuse claim that was made against him for abusing a minor was found to be credible by the Archdiocese of New York. He was removed from ministry. Uh, he now lives in Washington, D.C., um, and he has since resigned from the College of Cardinals. Um and after this, after who is removed, there was also uh, reports of him abusing seminarians while he was a bishop. So these were these were adults, but it was still he was in a position of power and using that power um, to sexually harass seminarians who were under him. Um, at the same time that this story came out, uh, there was a major report in the Associated Press um, about women religious, in especially in Africa and Latin America, being abused by priests. So these are really hard things to talk about, um, but we've been thinking about them a lot over this past month, um, and we wanted to bring this back. You know, we saw the sexual abuse crisis that broke in 2002 and now we're seeing these developments in 2018 um, and it's clear that not enough has been done to investigate these abuse claims you know especially in the U.S. so a lot of conversation has been focused on what does the church have to do to sort of change this culture that we are seeing yeah and it's interesting that it's occurring in the context of of the Me Too movement right mm -hmm. uh, in right now bishops are proposing different bishops uh, specifically Cardinal Whirl uh, you know McCarrick's successor in Washington is proposing that uh, there should be an internal, like, bishops should investigate how this was handled. Yeah, uh, how with, these breakdowns happened. Who reported what and mm -hmm. when and who knew and who was stonewalled and who was told to keep quiet. Because one of the parts of the scandal is that it was once the reports in the New York Times about the allegations of abusing seminarians came out, it was kind of acknowledged that this was an open secret, that these reports had been made to other bishops, to the Vatican, um, and still that did not stop Cardinal McCarrick's rise in the church hierarchy. So there's something, there was some breakdown in communication and accountability and enforcement that just did not happen. And the idea that the bishops are the ones who can now go back and, you know, kind of police themselves. Mm -hmm. It's it's hard to I take am, seriously. I am in general <laughs> against people investigating themselves mm -hmm. for wrongdoing, whether that be uh, the police, bishops, or even myself, right? Like, it's just generally, like, a good idea if there is public sin happening mm -hmm. to have that done in a very public way and in, a, in, a, in right. a way that includes 
not just the perpetrators, but the victims and the laity. Right. Because we've seen, you know, you, Zach, you mentioned the Me Too movement in other institutions that have been dealing with their own sexual abuse crisis. It is not helpful for these institutions that have allowed this to happen to then investigate themselves, because, again, it silences a lot of the victims and it doesn't make them feel safe enough to come forward. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. and other bishops have called for involving lay people in these investigations. Yes. Well, and one thing I don't think that's being really talked about a ton is how how are millennial Catholics responding to this, mm-hmm. uh, especially those of us that are you, you know still actively engaged and trying to pay attention and practice our faith, because we in large, a lot of us were not around for the 2002 uh, crisis. Right. Yeah. When it broke. No, I was 12 and I, mm-hmm. you know, I think I heard about it, but like it, this, the sex abuse crisis for me was kind of this thing that was bracketed in the past. It yep. was shameful. Um, but this story has kind of shaken me um, in that it, yeah, it clearly, the safeguards that we put in place in response mm-hmm. to the 2002 crisis were not enough. And so, that's why we wanted to bring the story to you guys and sort of ask, how are you guys processing this news? Is it changing your opinion of the church or affect your own prayer life or your own church going? Uh, let us know what you think. Send us an email, jesuitical at americamedia.org, or send us a tweet or a Facebook message. Today, we're excited to welcome the executive director of Network and leader of Nuns on the Bus, Sister Simone Campbell. Welcome to Jesuitical, Sister. Ah, Great to be with you. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. So our first question, what is Nuns on the Bus? (laughs) That's everybody's question. The good place to start. Um, Nuns on the Bus is a project of our organization, Network. And it started in 2012 when we went on the road to push back against the federal budget that uh, then Congressman Paul Ryan had proposed, and he said that his Catholic faith inspired this budget, and we said that was wrong. This was not, it was a budget that would decimate the low-income communities of our nation and would hurt especially the working poor families, and so we went on the road to advocate against it. After that, we were only on the road two weeks, but it sort of got into people's imaginations. So we've done a, each year after that, except for this year, we've done a bus trip on a variety of things, on immigration reform, on trying to bridge the divides in politics. uh, Wait, wait, you you didn't have one this year? No, we didn't have one this year. No, we had to stay in Washington, D.C. We really need help mending the gaps in politics. So we stayed here because so many bad things are happening in Congress that we Mm -hmm. couldn't afford to be out of D.C. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of urgent times. I didn't I didn't realize that um, Paul Ryan was part of the origin story of nuns on the bus. So I assume you've met him. And you obviously disagree with his policies. Um, But do you think he's motivated by his Catholic faith or something else? Well, I mean, it's a little hard to look into his heart. He says he is. My only trouble with it is that he's misinformed about his Catholic faith. And the hard part's been is that I've taken him various things that Pope Francis has written, and uh, like the Laudato Si, the encyclical mm-hmm. on environment and poverty. I took Joy of the Gospel. 
Uh, he's oh, I've read it. I've read it. It's like, well, <laughs> if you read it, you didn't take it in. So mm. anyway, yeah, it, it's a little frustrating. So the bus part is very um, noticeable when you guys are driving around the country. But what about the nun part? Why why did you become a nun, and what do you think that that brings to your work? Oh well. I became a nun way before I ever thought of a bus, but um, <laughs> let's see. Um, for me, I was always, uh, as a young person, as a teenager, young adult, I was always about civil rights, and um, uh, I'm getting old, so I can say <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, Dr. King's um, sermons, you know, that got you know broadcast on television were really powerful. I saw the kids on TV. I saw the kids in Birmingham standing up for integration of the schools. And so as a young person, I thought, well, if they could stand up, here I am in Southern California. I'm not in the South, but I can stand up too. Mm -hmm. And so my community, my I'm a sister of social service, and so my religious community is um, was founded in Budapest, Hungary in 1923, and then in Los Angeles in 1926. But in, in Budapest, our foundress was the first woman in par the Hungarian parliament. So we've always known that um, there is an intersection of charity and justice. That's pretty cool. And, I, didn't, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. What, what was the foundress's name? Uh, she is Margaret Schlachta. She said that there were these four levels that Sisters of Social Service were supposed to work at. And the bottom level is direct service. The second level is group work, uh, like in a settlement house, that kind of thing. The third level is movement work, things like move on or the anti-nuclear movement or um, those kinds of things. And then, of course, because she was in the legislature, probably she was she thought legislation was the top, the <laughs> pinnacle. But but what she said was was that legislation wouldn't be any good unless it's connected to the other three, and direct service would be less effective unless it was connected all the way through up to legislation. And for me, that has always been a big motivating thing to know that we all hold a piece of the process of governance. What would you say to you know a young woman today who looks at what you're doing? You're 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 a trained lawyer, right? Um, yeah. In addition yep. to being a you know a lobbyist and a sister, and you know someone might look at that and be like, okay, like I can I can be a lobbyist and a lawyer and a civil rights fighter without becoming a nun. Like, what what would your case to them be? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, you can go do it. Yes. <laughs> uh, but the, the but what, so what, is, what's um, distinctive about about religious life when it seems so integrated with you know just regular political life? <laughs> what I know is faith matters for nourishing our roots, keeping us from being hateful. I, I mean, in politics right now, people thrive on being hateful and having sharing hate speech, and so for me, faith keeps me anchored in that. Can I give you one example? We would uh, love that. <laughs> uh, today, uh, we, we work together in the interfaith community here in, in D.C., and at noon today, I was asked to lead um, a quarterly contemplative prayer time. And so I did this contemplative prayer time and asked everybody who came, a small group, but everybody who came is, 
come with a question that you're pondering and then hold it in prayer. And so I took my question. But what happened to my question during the quiet 15 minutes of just quiet contemplative prayer was uh, the, my question changed from how do we deal with healthcare in this administration to who will weep if we don't? And I realized the need for really for public weeping in order to provide any healing. And so for me, the intersection of my religious life and this work is that you get deeper insights, you get bolder ideas, and it's about the spirit breathing over the waters of chaos and making something out of it. I think that holding the spiritual practices at the heart of who we are is an intense way of living uh, and fidelity in community keeps us... Do you live in community? I've always wondered that. Um, I don't currently live with other sisters, but I'll tell you one of the great gifts of the internet (laughs) is that we can have as many fights on the internet as we (laughs) do when you live in person almost. Um, Can you get the same nourishment that you do in person? Well, no, but here's the thing. The, the struggles are nourishing because you keep engaged in um, trying to find the faithful way forward together, to articulate mm-hmm. it, to understand it. And that keeps me nourished, going, faithful. Mm-hmm. And I will say that prayer as a priority in religious life is something that my uh, married colleagues have a harder time with, or my colleagues who have another life form find it surprising. And many people have said they're kind of (laughs) jealous because my life is anything but a quiet life. And it's all about service and engagement. I don't know. And then my law partners, when I practiced law for 18 years, my law partners said that there was a qualitative difference with how I were interacted with clients. And I didn't see it, but they saw it. So Sister Simone, you were at the Vatican for International Women's Day. And uh, recently we spoke to the host of the Catholic Feminist podcast, Claire Swinarski. And one of the questions that we were discussing was, what, what does it mean to be a Catholic feminist? So would you describe yourself as one? And if so, where do you focus your attention as a Catholic feminist? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I am Catholic and I'm a feminist, so I think that makes me a Catholic feminist. Uh, (laughs) The logic would follow. (laughs) uh, Yeah, it was my legal training that helped me see that one. But uh, I am deeply pained by the lack of women's leadership in the church. And so one of the reasons that I work in federal politics and not in church settings is because I just don't have patience for the church fight. So I, I think I'm less... I'm less in, engaged on the issues within the Catholic Church. I admire people who are able to do it. Like Chris Shank, who started Future Church, is a friend of mine. And I admire Future Church greatly. And What do they, uh, what do, they do? They're working at promoting women's leadership at all levels. And rather than doing the Women's Ordination Conference, who I also admire they're working on women in the diaconate because there's clear biblical Mm. references to that i admire that work greatly but it's not mine i'm not patient enough for it i'm just 
Of course, people laugh at me because I say I work in federal policy. And stuff. <laughs> I was going to say, just so I understand you, uh, yeah. you find church political fights too <laughs> right. much, but but our, our but, Congress. but Congress, Congress is okay. Is, <laughs> oh, Congress is more hurly burly, and and I can be, I can, and the the truth of it is, I hate power imbalance, mm-hmm. and so within the church fights, there are too many power imbalances, and I'm not good at those fights. Then I have a tendency to. <laughs> So, so do you think being a nun gives you a, you know, a, an advantage or, a, or some sort of uh, leverage in these, in your, you know, interactions with high profile political figures that you don't have I, in the church? Um, yeah, I think that, I think that's possible. Um, I know that, um, well, I know the fact that I'm a sister matters to Catholic members of Congress. I mean, it matters to Speaker Ryan, it matters to Leader Pelosi in a very different way. It's supportive to her. It's annoying to him. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it Catholic guilt? Is that what you're pointing well, to? <laughs> yeah, it is Catholic guilt. But I think that there's a way, even with non-Catholics, that there's a kind of a moral authority, mm-hmm. an expectation of clarity that goes with the role, which is both gift and curse, because it then means that we have to be sure that we do stay true and not betray that trust. Yeah. Um, That's never happened before. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> fine. <laughs> right. Um, but I think it's that's the expectation. Yeah. Uh, that's the expectation I have is that I won't betray that trust. And uh, I get trusted with the stories of so many people because of it that. Um, it, they become like this sacred community I carry around inside of me of stories people have told me. Jim Martin, Father Jim Martin said to me oh, a while ago, he was inter- interviewing me about something. And of course, I'll, I'll tell all these stories. And, and he said, well, you know, that's what Jesus did. And I was <laughs> like, really? Oh, I never thought that. That's kind of cool. <laughs> so Sister Simone, what issue are you more, most concerned about right now? Oh my gosh. Okay. Can I have two? I have two. Of course. <laughs> well, actually three. There's two. Um, the the sister three initiative. issues that <laughs> I am totally frantic about are uh, healthcare that we've been working on, mm-hmm. preserving healthcare for vulnerable people. The second is uh, tax policy. That's probably the policy that we're Listeners will think, oh, my gosh, isn't that boring? No, it's the most important policy for our income and wealth disparity in our nation. And uh, what people are trying to do to give the top 1% this huge tax cut that was going to create a huge deficit. And then they're going to be surprised and say, oh, well, we have to cut all the social service programs because we don't have any money now. So that one just has me totally nuts. <laughs> and Number three. The other, the other issue is immigration, uh, that we willfully refuse as a nation to fix a system that was designed in 1960. Yeah. And if you had, um, you know, anything designed in 1960, you'd think maybe we need to modernize it. But because of exploitation and the political game of blaming others, Congress is willfully refusing to fix it. And that is 
it's not Christian. Yeah. When you it's when you put it that way, I understand why teach. you don't have time for a road trip this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, sister, yeah. it, it's kind of it's a very overwhelming current political landscape. So, how do we discern during these times? Like, how do we select which issue to focus on when it's everything feels so overwhelming in politics right now? Well, right. Here's the challenge. Um, that's where for me meditation becomes really important and you listen to where you're called because we can't do everything. And as long as everybody's doing their part, then the whole community can respond to these times, but everybody has to do something. Hmm. So that's what I advocate. Everybody do something. And as long as we all do it, it'll get done. Those are wise. Those are wise words. Sister, this has been great. Uh, We have one final question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, if you could canonize someone, living or dead, <laughs> fictional or non-fictional, uh, Catholic or not, Catholic or not, who would it be, and why? Give us the elevator pitch. Oh, canonize! You know who I think I will pick is somebody you won't know, but <laughs> Margaret Kistler. Margaret Kistler should be canonized because she was a shop steward in Cincinnati. Uh, She lost her job in 2009. When she lost her job, she lost her health care and ended up getting colon cancer and um, dying because of it. But in her um, illness, she still fought for the Affordable Care Act to be fully implemented. She engaged in trying to make sure that the folks from her business that she'd gotten laid off from were okay. When she was suffering, she kept an eye on others. And what's a better definition of a saint than that? St. Margaret. St. Margaret Kistler. (laughs) Pray for us. Amen. Sister, Sister, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really great. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Keep up the good fight. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. Come join us in D.C. It'll be fun. Or call your member of Congress and your senators, you know, just where you are. Just just random question. Why why is calling the only thing that works, supposedly? Uh, It's the best thing that works because it's actually a human being talking to human being. And up on Capitol Hill, they have the feeling that emails are uh, no longer really about grassroots. They call it AstroTurf, fake grassroots. <laughs> so, uh, but they don't have robocalls yet to Congress, so we know those are real. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, have a great Alrighty. rest of your day. Thank you. Take care, y'all. All thank right, you. Bye. Bye. All right, now it's time for some listener feedback. We have some new patrons, don't we, Zach? Yeah, want to shout out uh, at the ambassador level, Lisa Clark, and at the superfan level, Margaret Nichols and Catherine Kukailo. Uh, thank you for supporting the show. It means a lot. Uh, an important reminder, uh, if you want to come visit the office and have a drink with us and get a tour of the office um, and even sit in on a show, uh, Patreon is how you do that. So patreon.com slash America media. Check out all the details are there. I like how we can sell bu- 
people buying us beer you want to bring a <laughs> benefit it's, it's, so if you want to do stuff for us you please can't join you can't Patreon. bring beer but if you come empty-handed we will also provide the drinks this that is, is part of the mm-hmm. deal mm-hmm. um and also we you know we weren't releasing episodes this mm-hmm. week but there was still a lot of jesuitical activity happening Right. So we want to give a shout out to our Facebook community. Um, This is a place where even like Zach said, we've been gone for a while on break. um, But this is a place where some of you might have found out a lot of our personal news where you guys can engage with each other. And if you want to be a part of our community there, you can join us at Facebook.com slash group slash Jesuitical. All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. Who who wants to go first, guys? (laughs) I guess I'll go first because right, go I I got there first. Um, That's true. <laughs> uh, so my consolation is for those of you listeners who don't already know this, um, I am now engaged. Um, Enoch proposed in at the end of June. My sense of time is so off, but he proposed at the end of June. And this has been consoling for obvious reasons, like the man that I love wants to spend the rest of his life with me. Um, but it's also been really exciting. Like we've, we're in the very early stages of trying to plan what our wedding or ceremony is going to look like. And I mentioned this in a past episode months ago, the kind of excitement that I felt after the Holy Land, I'm feeling that again. And I'm like starting RCIA classes in the fall and just sort of thinking about you know, having a Catholic wedding and just f- becoming a like an even bigger part of the Catholic Church. It's just really, I feel like God has been leading me there since I started at America. Um, so that's just been really consoling and beautiful to kind of just bring that. And also you guys have been a part of that. So yeah. I'm glad, you know, uh, I'm so these happy. Are, these are great times. <laughs> these are so good. <clears throat> what about you, Zach? Uh, my consolation also has to do with uh, mine and Amanda's engagement. Uh, so we got engaged uh, in Rome. It's kind of a disgustingly cute story that yeah, I, will we, spare, I, will spare you, I will spare you of. <laughs> um, but at, at any rate, uh, the consolation for me came from having this 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 grace and this discernment that was happening very much just sort of inside my own head and in conversations with me and God alone. And you know, I was obviously talking to other people about it, but uh, the conversation wasn't happening with Amanda, and so. To be able to have this long discernment and then, you know, act on it and then taking that out of myself and into uh, communion with my best friend. And also it's happening in a very public way, uh, signified by a ring, uh, which I will say I did not get anything. Um, (laughs) But our Jesuit formator and myself are in agreement that I should probably get an engagement Xbox or Nintendo Switch. Oh, Lord. Anyway, but so the point is that you know, we're making this public commitment to each other uh, or in the process of making, you know, the sacramental public commitment and having that joy being shared with everyone else is exactly what I think God calls us to do. And so to have that happen uh, in a very concrete way with, my, you know, the person I want to spend the rest of my life with uh, has been the great consolation of the summer. So, so great. That's mine. Ashley? Well, my desolation is that I'm losing both of my co-hosts to marriage. <laughs> you guys are going to hang out with me anymore. Yes, we will. No, it's, it's a public thing. It's in a community. <laughs> we'll right, still guys. be your co-hosts. We All love right. you. <laughs> uh, no, I really. I also have a consolation, and it's also a love story. So we have a receptionist here at America. I think, you know, a lot of buildings have receptionists, and that's also often, you know, the first person you see in the morning last person you see when you leave but you, you know I, I know I tend to sometimes just like blow by because I'm busy and I need to do something or I need to go to the bathroom and so you often you know just kind of like take for granted that you know 
Glenda sitting there and keeping us safe. Um, and I know I definitely did that. But recently, I've really, she was gone for a week. And I was like, ah, I really miss Glenda. And since then, I've really made an effort to just stop and talk with her. And I have really enjoyed it. And she's become like my office grandma. And I was never really close with my grandmas. And I am just <laughs> really grateful for her, um, for her quiet presence, um, her understated presence. Um, and, you know, she's just become like a really important person mm -hmm. at, at work for me. Um, so, yeah, I think like there, there are a lot of people in our lives who we we don't see them as they are meant to be seen <laughs> as like a wonderful gift from God. Um, and so it was like that for like four years with Glenda. And now I'm seeing her right. And I really love her. And so I see God in that. That's great. Shout out to Glenda. Glenda's the best. <laughs> she Glenda's is. the best. She's Glenda great. really is the best. <laughs> and she's like our biggest fan for kickball and I really appreciate it. Hopefully after she hears this, she'll want to come on Jesuitical because we keep jokingly inviting her on and she laughs us off, but I think we're getting closer. So yeah. thanks, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll wrap it up. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Antonio Delaware Brust. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Colleen Dully. In-studio audience provided by Rosa Del Saz, Matthew Kaka, Kappa Bianca and Sean Roos. Matthew, I always call your brother James Coca Cabana. <laughs> so when I saw your name, I was like, I have no idea how to say this. Anyways, you can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Scott Allen B and A Erlinson. And you can send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericanMedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.